the flavor. All right, wow. Is this really happening? Can't believe we're back at it, kid. It's weird. It's like a dream. It's like we um It's like we drove off and forgot if we left flavor bin on or not. I've just been itching to fucking get get at you bury your ass in flavor cules. <laughs> they say podcasting's changed. They want to know how I feel about it. I so for Colby. Yo, Bill, this problem I've had my whole life. The problem with Flavor Bin is we were ahead of the curve. A little early? My whole life, I'm always like, I'm down with the cool shit. Four or five years later, everyone starts to get into it. I know, man. I just, it's, it's tough. It's a tough, it's a tough gift to have. Been a few years. I don't want to dwell on it, but it's good to be back. Yeah, man. So we got a good episode. We talked to your uncle, a Hollywood writer who uh, has a pretty infamous Seinfeld story. Yeah, Uncle Neil comes with some heat. I like that. I ran into David Byrne. Mm-hmm, I like that piece. We talked to your guy, Eric. Yeah, fellow editor, uh, editor of Chef's Table. The Netflix show. Yep. Kind of a foodie. Yeah, crazy Yelp bookmarks. Does a lot of research. Let's start off with this Philip Leeds piece. Nice, I love Philip Leeds. Though, what's his deal, man? I met Philip when I worked at Def Jam. He nice. was with Rush Management. Rolling with Rush. Yeah. Nice. He uh, moved on to management stuff for NERD and Pharrell when he was on tour, and he does a lot of photography now. He just did this book, Big Shots, which you and I are in. Yeah, man, you art directed that, right? I did. That probably had a lot to do with me getting in the book. Well, thanks for putting my placement next to Riff Raff. You had this Houston Rockets shirt on? You look yeah. dope in there. Thanks, Paul. I think you're lighting like a spliff or something too, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good look. Thanks, Paul. Anyway. All right, this is Philip talking about Goose Gossage, former Yankee and Billions. San Diego Padre. Why were you talking about the Goose anyway? So random. I know. Philip showed up at a party I was having with uh, one of those t-shirt jerseys. Gossage. I don't remember the number. You probably do. 54, obviously. Yeah. So I pounced. Got this interview. Flavor. My man, Phillips. What's up? You got a Goose Gossage? I got a Goose Gossage shirt on. Um, one, of my, one of my relievers in the 70s. Um, but I was just saying how there's this great clip of him going crazy at a press conference. Yeah. Apparently, he lost the day before, then came back the next day, pitched again, won both games of a doubleheader. The press gave him some shit, like, what happened yesterday, Goose? And he just went ballistic. <laughs> like, you motherfuckers, blah, blah, blah. You can go talk to the fat man upstairs. Like, calling George Steinbrenner fat, like, all kind of crazy shit. Wow. And, um... I was on some Goose Gossip shit a couple months ago. You might look good with a... I've been thinking about bringing a handlebar. Yeah. You can't really ask me these questions because I don't really follow sports. No, that's okay. But you got the gossip shit, it's all right. In the 70s, I was an avid Yankee supporter. Bucky Dent, Mickey Rivers, Oscar Gamble, Catfish Hunter. Screen name on my BBM (laughs) is Oscar Gamble. Number 17. Baseball Network, WPIX Sports presents its 40th season of New York Yankee Baseball. You motherfuckers, all you motherfuckers with a fucking pin and a fucking tape recorder, you can fucking turn it on and take it upstairs to the fat man. Okay? This is Big Frida, the Queen Diva, your best of believer, and you're listening to The Flavor Bin. Girl down, you already know! 
flavor, Ben. Haven't seen you around these parts for a while. Flavor. You were driving around, you were telling me about some challenge or something, like sell everything in your closet. What the so fuck I is that? Tony I don't, you don't know who Gary V is? No. I don't know. Somehow I got linked to something and I saw and he's like, $20,000 challenge. I guarantee you if you clean out your closet. And he's just like, I just sold these ski boots for 60 bucks. Did you, are you sure you didn't just wake up in the middle of the night and see like an <laughs> infomercial or something? No, but the thing that he was doing too is he was going to yard sales, buying shit and flipping it. And I was just like, that's where he lost me. I was like, now that's the energy too much work. Who has the energy for that? But I do have so so much shit and then I came to your house and I was like oh my god yeah. there's just it's falling out of a closet you have so much shit have you ever tried selling shit on eBay uh, I never sell anything that people give to me so I just have this surplus of just ridiculous things every time I'm gonna do a spring cleaning I have like five or six items that you just take without a second thought Sneakers, I've given you size 10 to 13. You just take them and you wear them big or small. Okay, just, all right. Now you're making you're me sound... Know, I'm just saying, like, you, uh, yeah. you're just like, I'll take it. I'll figure it out. You're right. a hoarder by definition. I think it's just the genre. You know, you're a... Hoarder is crazy. That sounds like I have stacks of newspaper everywhere. And, like, I mean, I think there's got to be some sort of a term for in between, like, dangerous hoarding of magazines and old things where you can't walk through your house. And kind of like, oh, my God, i got to have all all the Star Wars bottle caps or something because that's a that's the kind of issues I have. Uh, there's posters just coming out of all the open spaces and crevices yeah. of this. Well, house. you know what's embarrassing is you're down here visiting me and you're sleeping <laughs> in my old room. Yeah, there are like there's, there's like twenty rolled up posters, seven hundred mixers, and yeah, and like uh, like four thousand records just in shelves, and that's not even DVDs. like half my collection of. I don't know. I wrote a song about it. Oh, you did? Yeah. Do you want, do you want to hear it? Yeah. Okay. Goes on something like this. Collectible weird shit. I don't know what to do with it. Collectible weird shit. I don't know where to put it. Collectible weird shit. I don't know what to do with it. eBay. Put that in the flavor bin? Do you have any karaoke tips for somebody? Like, any rules? Uh, any... Wow. Sort of. If you're if you're not really into karaoke, do you have like a classic song that you know is only two minutes that you could? No. I saw somebody do really well with Private Eyes, uh -huh. Hollow Notes. Oh, because you get the crowd into a clapping. Yeah. thing. Yes. and then it's like, you know. Huh. Well, I'll tell you this. It has like this whole intro that you're like, I don't, I, I don't <laughs> think I've ever heard this before. I know I've heard this song a hundred times. You're like, and I don't know the melody even. Uh -huh. So just make sure you know your song, I guess. Uh huh. You know, pick a few songs. Well, is there a song you could, that we could start learning now if you warn us? Like, it's a good short song. Well, our man Charlie Becker, he's really into karaoke. Yeah. And he has a few good ones. Neil Diamond songs, which are kind of fun. And uh -huh. That gets the crowd going can, smart. Yeah, and you can also kind of swagger through them yeah. a little bit. Yeah. You know, personally... What I've done at karaoke a couple times is uh, Panic by the Smiths. Panic, Hang the DJ? Yes. Can you sing a little Panic? Panic in the streets of London. Panic in the streets of Birmingham. I wonder to myself. Yeah, it's a great song. Miley Cyrus, uh, Wrecking Ball, that really got everyone screaming, too. Everyone that's, knows the that's lyrics That's a great one. That. i got to tell you, the craziest thing, though, L.A. karaoke is nuts. There's a lot of very talented, frustrated people. Yeah. Dude, I was at a karaoke night at this bar in Hollywood, and this guy 
this kind of like thin guy with a real cool black leather jacket that looked like it came out of a Cassavetes film. He's just kind of up there singing. He's singing uh, four non-blondes. Uh, oh, what's the the big song? Say like? hey. Yeah. I yeah. say hey. Yeah. What's going on? And then he's like, and then I'm just kind of talking to somebody, and it's like, wee, 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 wee. Well, the fucking guy is playing a harmonica. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's singing, he's belting the song out, and in between, he's like, wow, wow, wow. He's playing a harmonica. I'm like, you're, you're ruining this for everyone. They also have like perfect choreo. If there's a video oh or state, if they have a certain stage move, they know it by heart. Yeah. I saw a guy do hammer and he did, you know, the hammer dance across the floor. Yeah, yeah LA's tough. You got to come correct. <sighs> when I did it, I um, told my friend I'm not really uh, that good. And she was like, just go. Yeah, how bad can you be? And yeah. I did this Stone Temple Pilots song. And I was wow. like, wow, I don't really know any of these lyrics. And I finished, and I was like, see, I'm bad. And, you know, she was like, yeah, you shouldn't go again. <laughs> <laughs> oh. How could... <laughs> you were supposed to edit that. You left me singing the Smiths in there. You oh. sound great. And uh, <laughs> yeah. it's to teach the Flavor Bin audience about karaoke. You sounded awesome, man. <laughs> okay, all right. Great voice. All right, what do we, what do we got next? Next up, we got Eric Friedenberg, who is my uh, West Coast Evan Bernard. Uh, an editor also, by the way, right? Yes, uh, he's an editor, and um, he worked on a show that I know you like. Oh, what's that? Chef's Table. I love Chef's Table. I talked to him about the style and uh, yeah. how they ma- maintain that throughout the, uh, all the whole series. Arriving at Flavor Cove on right. What up? I'm here with uh, Eric Friedenberg. I'm really glad to have you here, Eric. Um, Thanks, man. The San Fran kid. So um, We the- call it Frisco, just so you know. <clears throat> For all of you non-San Francisco you don't like it when you call it San Fran. Duly noted. All right, so I wanted to have you on the show, Eric, because you're an uh, editor for Chef's Table, uh, an incredible TV show. Which episodes did you do? I did Dan Barber, the farm-to-table guy in New York. I did Alex Atala, the Brazilian chef. Mm-hmm. I did Alexander Couillon, French chef. And uh, most recently, uh, Nancy Silverton, the L.A. mozza, pizza matriarch of L.A. Holy fuck, you've done a lot. First of all, the editing is fantastic. Great job. What's, oh, thank you. So this is the Jiro Dreams of Sushi guy, right? Yeah, David Gelb. Sort of is the showrunner and sort of creator of the concept. Does he oversee everything as sort of like an aesthetic czar? He's like, this is how we're going to do it. There are certain things that are structured, like the way that they shoot what we call the food symphony, which is like the food porn music video that happens right before Act 3. And like, so that is kind of structured where they they set aside a day and they always shoot that with motion control and slow motion. So it, they shoot them differently, but it always has that sort of very high production value, glossy look. Oh, I think one thing that gives it a more sophisticated feel is the music. Is that classical music? Is this stock? Is this, are these actual Tchaikovsky? Like, what is the music? If I'm not mistaken, I think Philip Glass actually did the score to Jiro. Oh. And so it's a lot of what I call like modern classical 
or modern cinema score music. I know what you're saying, that these modern sort of classical guys, because uh, I did this pilot for uh, The Leftovers, and we used this guy, Max Richter, who yeah. was just gorgeous music, really. I use him for my temp score for Chef's Table all the time. I want to talk about how long does it take you to edit an episode of Chef's Table? I don't know if I'm allowed to share trade secrets, but about eight weeks. Okay. <laughs> and which was your favorite one to cut? They were all fun, but I have to say Alex Atala. That dude Because he's like the coolest guy I've ever witnessed, you know? Like, he's just... It's know. like if Henry Rollins became a cook with that guy. He's yeah. so fucking badass. And, dude, he's hot as fuck, too. He's a good-looking guy, huh? My, yeah, my mom, it was kind of disturbing, <laughs> but she was like, that is one sexy man. <laughs> <laughs> he gives you what you want as a filmmaker you're you just i just want like dynamics you know i want like and the guy is like you know he would like make a bonfire at sunset and yeah. it's fucking speedo and it looks it's hard to like not you know makes it interesting um there was a gorgeous sequence there where you're doing about four or five rapid cuts with the camera just sort of following behind him was that was the edit did the director come in and be like this is, i want to like bunch these together or is that was something you came up with it's like i try to find match cuts and like the simplest one because they always shoot them a lot I actually ask my directors to sh shoot them for me is what I call the wrestler shot because I feel like Aronofsky yes. just does it all the time where we're walking behind the hero's head I call it the insider shot because Michael Mann did it with right. Russell Crowe but sure yeah. you're a little younger it's a generational thing <laughs> and you do like a sound design thing too so you're hearing you know sirens and city and then you're hearing barnyard animals and it just has a sort of cool effect I, I love match cuts Young editor listening to this, give me give me one movie he should watch that you're like this this is a game changer. All that jazz. I know that's that makes me sound old, but that movie is just fucking unbelievable. And you'll watch that movie and you'll all these hipster filmmaker guys for the last 30 years have been ripping off Bob Fosse. That guy is just a man. Do you know who the editor was? No, I don't. It's Alan Hine. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You do Fosse, Fosse, Fosse. Ooh, clever baby. That was a pretty good segment with your guy, Eric. Thanks, uh, I'm Bill. a little heated about something. Talk to me. I don't like you fucking talking about Bob Fosse without me around. <laughs> That's like one of my favorite filmmakers. Really? What's the, yeah, it's fucked up, man. What's a Fosse film gets talked about in the park. I want in. Flavor. Are you going to watch the Fosse Verdun thing with uh, Sam Rockwell, Michelle Williams? Yeah, I'm a huge Fosse fan. I just saw Cabaret at the New Beverly. Oh, that's a great film. Yeah, fantastic editing. I think that's Alan Heim as well. You have a photo with Alan Heim because I asked you who's this guy. Yeah, like, it's Alan Heim, and I thought that's who you were talking about in the interview. What, yeah. what, what's the deal with that? What did you mean? Was uh, when I was nominated into Ace, uh, the American Cinema Editors. You get to meet the acting president. He was the acting president at the time. Took a picture with him. I was like, oh my God, I'm a big fan. And he's like, all right, keep moving, kid. <laughs> you got your photo, kid, and that was it, huh? Yep, that was all. Well, let's, let's talk about Will Ward. Let's talk about Will Ward, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about <laughs> a mutual friend, Will Ward. He's uh, Agent WME. 
the segment he's on is a little more of juxtaposition of his personality. He's like this posh English guy, right? Yeah, he looks like he's an extra in like uh, Chariots of Fire. Sometimes yeah. I hear the Vangelis theme playing. Yeah, and he's got like this tight blonde curls like matted down with tons of pomade and he just looks so wealthy and clean english sterling accent that he speaks with what a guy man he's so annoying imagine this guy with this obsession over uh, doomsday prepping go bags and things like that it's like vampire or zombie kill kits I don't think so i think will ward is more into practical realities like earthquakes or floods sure yeah have you thought about what you would do if some earthquake hit Los Angeles? Yeah, I know to head to the hills. That's all I'm just going to run to the hills. <laughs> right. With that electric car of yours. <laughs> You'd probably get about like 40 miles out. 240 miles, Bill. Well, that's the conversation we had with Will Ward. I'm with Colby out here in Los Angeles with our friend Will Ward. I want you to give your top three tips for surviving some sort of earthquake or urban disaster. Obviously the earthquake hit. Inside its own little Pandora's box of probably 50 things, essential things you've got to put inside the earthquake But if you could only have three, or let's say five, whatever you feel you can deal with. Well, you got, I mean, general 10,000 foot view, the earthquake kit, you've got to have your documents printed out, ready to go, and you've got to have $1,000 hidden somewhere in your house in cash. You scored a lot of points with your crazy uh, freezer plan. Are you going to tell everyone this. where I hide my cash in my house? <laughs> Is the cash really going to be helpful? We were thinking maybe like bullets or mean? chickens <laughs> might be more useful in an apocalyptic situation. Yeah, yeah but keeping like 30 chickens just in case the apocalypse <laughs> happens is a bit much. Yeah, I'll go is. for cash. Yeah, okay. If this time I can buy the chickens from the guy who has been keeping them for years. But you've got to have a good, you got to have a good pitch, right? You got to make him feel the economy is going to come back online, right? Be like, you're going to want this no, in a week in when everything's back to normal. Cash is king. Cash is king. Okay, all right. How do so, you gonna feed those chickens? <laughs> <laughs> so you've got earthquake kit, documents, twenties, yeah. hundreds, whatever. If you're super rich, have more. more. Yeah, the more money, the better. Well, that that you don't need an apocalypse to to feel that way. The earthquake kit. What's in what's involved in an earthquake kit? Oh, I really need it. But everything, all the basics: towels, food. Those little special reflective blankets that you get that don't look warm. They give you after a marathon. Oh, the mylar ones, right? Exactly. Yeah. Enough food. But like food bars that really aren't good. But that'll sure mm. keep you alive for months. More people, Bill die in the four days after an earthquake than die in the actual earthquake. Gotta have a radio. And a radio, okay. And of course fresh batteries. No, but you've got to have a radio. Wind up radio, crank, because that's how they tell you it's all clear. I have a wind-up flashlight. You'll be fine. Oh, flashlight no radio? You're fucked. Well, I'll be I'll fine come too over and because tell you I only live a block from you, so we're just planning on running to you. So your, earthquake kid, f- your earthquake kit is me? <laughs> yeah. My earthquake kit is get to Will's. directions to your house. A lot of people won't get notes up tonight. Never been. A lot of people going to suffer tonight. I uh, I have this rule now when I buy a Blu-ray or an old DVD or something, I don't unwrap it until I watch it. It's a, it's a visual cue to me that hey, asshole, you bought this like three years ago. Yeah, <laughs> you haven't touched it. What's wrong with you? You sound like such a dinosaur to me right now. Really? Yeah, it's just like I, I haven't physically touched the disc and put something in in a while. Yeah. 
I, I have done what you're saying. It's so rewarding. Right. I did it with Jules and Jim recently. I had never okay. seen it. You're like, wow. Like, and now you never saw yeah, that? Yeah. I was like, how can you even write a bicycle as a film <laughs> fan without seeing Jules et Jim? That's a great I had film, right? I seen it because I saw a Band Apart and it's kind of the same vibe with the two yeah. guys and girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, I've true. seen this. Oh, no, wait, I haven't. No, I haven't seen this. Wait a minute. Different yeah. French New Wave Revolution. Flavor Bin, you're so hot. I've known Colby for a long time, and suddenly out of nowhere, he stops and says, Hey, uh, you know, my uncle was a comedy writer. Yep, Neil Leibowitz. Yeah, he was kind of the uncle that I never saw growing up, but I heard about, uh, who, who had made it in Hollywood and never came back to New York. <laughs> I remember being a kid, uh, my grandmother would always be excited. She'd be like, Neil's episodes on, and it, whether it was Mork and Mindy, the Jeffersons, Mama's Family, Silver Spoons, he worked for all of them. Did that kind of help form your involvement in the industry later? Like, did you kind of like knowing a little bit more about behind the scenes, or did you just kind of... Um, well, yeah, he, it was more gossip. My family is obsessed with gossip, so he would just give us gossip about everyone. Like, really funny insider Silver Spoons story is, he says um, Ricky Schroeder's parents had Jason Bateman fired from the show because uh, he was getting too popular. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Ricky Schroeder's parents are haters. Oh. And the maid on the Jeffersons, I forget her name, used to take home all the catering food. That was another thing I remember. <laughs> <laughs> but more than anything, it was just a carrot for me to want to get to Hollywood and follow in his footsteps. Sounds very sensible, actually. Yeah. You know, like, Who wants all that food to go to waste, you know? My grandma would always, like, whatever episode he was writing... We'd watch it, and then she'd check the ratings the next day, and she'd be like, the ratings went up. That's because Neil wrote it. And I'm always like, <laughs> I don't even, know if that's the reason the ratings. How know that when they were about to tune in? Yeah. But anyway, she's very proud, and we're all proud of Neil Leibowitz. Good Jew. You called me up and said that your uncle had invited us to go see uh, a movie at the Writers Guild Theater. Uh, we, went, we went so good time that's how long it's been since i wasn't gonna was mention recorded. that oh that's why you yeah, did it sorry yeah, bill yeah <laughs> flavor you were really upset that there were no snacks you kind of didn't let it go it was it was actually funny to see the shock in your eyes knowing that you weren't gonna have like a 16 ounce coke in your hand for the movie i'm just like you don't have anything the writers guild theater you don't have any drinks snacks nothing do writers not wish to enjoy anything while they watch movies yeah you know uh when we do uh screenings for our films we rent out like local theater and that we always give popcorn and sodas bare minimum yeah when i worked at the school newspaper in college uh i would get tickets to these movie screenings at various local theaters around town it would be like at 10 a.m in the morning and then you'd see people from the the real newspapers there as well the really you know like Union Tribune. Did they stuff. have hats that said press? <laughs> have to lick their pencil before it writes. They would have all sorts of little, like a mini bag of popcorn and some sodas for all the reviewers. to. Actually, it was kind of cool. Have you ever seen this? These reviewer pens? They have a little light in them. Of course. So yeah. you can see what you're writing in the dark. Editors have At those. least they had snacks. That's all I'm saying. I was, you know me. What is your perfect uh, movie snacks? Ooh. I like those little ice cream bonbons in the cup, Super but they bonbon. rarely make it through the trailers. <laughs> I mean, they're going to melt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I yeah, got to get at them. The yeah. Butterfinger ones, maybe a large cherry Coke. Yeah, I like to do the, the 50-50, like half Coke, half Diet Coke. 
Oh, yeah. Okay, so this is me, you, and my Uncle Neil. And apologies for the audio quality. We're outside the theater doing this interview. Flavor bit. Neil, you got us into Writers Guild Theater. Acceptable theater, no concession stand. No, you you know. get what you pay for. But the filmmakers will get a round of applause. <laughs> On the drive over here, Colby is telling me that you worked writing a lot of iconic TV during the 70s. Uh-huh. Jefferson's, yes. Silver Spoons, yes. Punky Brewster, Mork and Mindy. Can you tell us about Mork and Mindy? It was the first thing, I, first sitcom I ever wrote. It was the first year of, of Mork and Mindy, and I wrote two the first year that it was on. Do you have any Robin Williams story? He was actually very nice to me. Oh uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. No, he complimented me. Uh, my girlfriend at the time knew him. She was she was a bartender at the Improv, and they mm-hmm. knew each other. And, so we hung out a little bit, and he was just yeah. real nice. When you saw this guy acting out your jokes, did you like, oh, this guy, this guy's got Well, it. the first time I ever saw him was at a, it was actually at the party where I met the girlfriend. Okay. It, it was a house party. I think Gary Shanley lived there. So Robin Williams is at the party, but I didn't know who he was. This is before Mark and Mindy. And this guy is just speaking like a French actor. I think he's a French guy. I had yeah. no idea who he was. <laughs> he was just French, he's a French guy to me. And then, like, a few months later, I was writing on the show. Was he cast already, or were you... I don't think he was at that point. He might have been, and I well, just didn't know about I it. I think he was because it was an offshoot from Happy Days. Yeah, it was. Where he... he oh, you're right. It's a spin-off, was, as we yeah. call it in the business. Good evening, Kathleen. Gary Marshall's son wanted a spaceman on one of his shows, so that's how they came up with it. That was <laughs> yeah. what it was all about. Like, yeah, well, yeah. when I came to pitch to uh, Mark and Mindy, all they had was that episode of Happy Days. They didn't even have a pilot. Yeah. All they had was him on Happy Days. So that's all I had to go yeah. with. That was kind of an interesting episode because they kind of, yeah. they thought it was like, is he just some crazy guy? It's right. acting like he's an alien, and at the end they have like a light from above right, shining yeah, yeah. like oh my god he really is yes sir I'm coming back right now you have a longer assignment for me earth 1978 shuzbot flavor Colby said you had a really interesting story about one of the original writers on Seinfeld uh, it's someone I used to play basketball with and he he was he was a uh, a writer for Castle Rock he was their sitcom writer basically and Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David came to pitch an idea for a series to Castle Rock. So they had never done anything before, so they hooked them up together, yeah. you know, with, with their sitcom writer, basically. Okay, Bill, so at this point, I needed a little more information, and so I went to this guy's actual writing partner, who happens to be a friend of Neil as well. His name's Freddie Schaffirma. He goes into way more detail. Okay. Yeah, he drops a little more uh, knowledge on us of the situation. This feels really Hollywood to you, right? It's like real oh, Hollywood insider shit. I'm intrigued. It's off the record on the QT. Very hush hush. <laughs> My man, Freddie Schaffari, for you. Um, this guy who was one of the original Seinfeld producers slash writer who... Uh, yeah, you know, in fact, he was the guy that came on and he actually told them uh, that uh, they didn't know how to run a show, so he, they came on and he was part of the Seinfeld Chronicles. He thought that was a good idea to call it the Chronicles, which sounds like a news program, or Walter Cronkite. Okay, hold on a second. Now we have two guys telling us this story, Neil and this new guy, Freddie. How do these guys know so much about this situation? Well, it's a famous story, but 
Freddie was actually this guy Robert's partner and this guy screwed Freddie out of a lot of money so Freddie was stoked to tell the story because uh, this guy took a real L I mean, you might pick up on some uh, schadenfreude I believe yeah, they, they a call lot it. of schadenfreude there. <laughs> yeah. so they started working on Seinfeld. So this so, guy was just to kind of keep it on the rails. Yeah, yeah. They they set him up with a professional sitcom writer. So, you know, they they talked out the story and basically wanted it more traditional and and they wanted it basically about, no, about, about nothing. nothing. Right. Flavor. Uh, Seinfeld and Larry said, "Can we get rid of this guy?" Basically. <laughs> but before this all happened, a deal was made where. Uh, he, got 10% of the show. I think it was about 10%. That's so 10 points. Uh, they actually don't like at that point and they kind of find kind of find a way and, and one day he goes into Larry David and he actually tells them, you know what the problem with the show? The show has to be about something. And they said, no, the show's about nothing. No, he insisted it had to be about something. So they said, hey, listen, one of the game his points they say why don't you go he leaves he's 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 living in large because he's getting a little residual but he's feeling good about this and he's got 10 points in the show so he got kicked off he just kicked off the show got kicked off the show but he's feeling good because he got kicked off the show with 10 points okay and these are not monkey points these are adjusted gross uh colby what does that even mean i don't understand what those terms mean yeah i don't i'm not sure either can we talk to someone who might know yeah i got just the guy steve levinson lev he goes by Producer of HBO shows Entourage, Boardwalk Empire, and creator of Ballers. The NFL show on HBO. Colby's probably not going to tell you this on his own. But yes, I will. I edited the pilot for Ballers and picked the theme music. Bam. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. All right. We got you. Let's get to Lev's explanation about these points. Everybody talks about points in Hollywood. The bottom line is it's not about the points or even the name of the points, whether you want to call them uh, adjusted gross or not. It's what the definition is. You can call anything anything. Uh, Colby, <laughs> this isn't really helping me understand this hang with it lev always delivers it's all about what the definition is meaning what is the distribution fee how do the points get paid out you can actually have one great point or a or 25 that means shit it's about quality not quantity well uh all right <laughs> i guess uh, uh yeah you know i I think there's something to be called from there. Um, it w- there was good entertainment value, at least, I feel. <laughs> Different tack than I was hoping for, but uh, that's cool. Let's get back to Freddie and Neil. Okay, and these are not monkey points. These are adjusted gross, right off the top, okay? So the show is on for a while. I think it does like eight, six, eight episodes. It's called The Seinfeld Chronicles. And it does, it does nothing, basically. But needs some money. Oh, wow. And he's offered, I believe it was $200,000 to sell his 10 points on the show. One day he says to me, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go in there. I'm going to sell them back my points. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, no, 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 no. They, they have no idea. This show's going nowhere. So during lunch, he goes out, comes back in an hour later. You're not going to believe him. I took them for $160,000. I said, you sold all your points? He said, yeah, they're worthless. Did you try talking them out? I said, that's crazy. Go back in and ask for two more points. Hold something. He said, no, 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 no. This is unbelievable. I got. And then it gets paired with Cheers. And it became a huge hit because it was right after Cheers. 
So months go by, it looks like maybe you got a good deal and all of a sudden the show takes off. It's unbelievable, it runs for 10 years. And when they go into syndication, the first take, and every round of syndication gets you the same money, the first round of syndication brings every participant, his 10 points was worth $60 million. Holy and it's gone into probably 15 rounds of syndication. Up every night in a cold sweat, he resues them. Actually, gets a litigator. He says, You can't get an attorney. If you want your money back, you gotta hire a litigator. So he gets some guy from England and he says, They pay him. He, the guy's proposals during lunch, they had him. This is true that they, they, they went out to lunch when he'd sold the points and he got <laughs> drunk and he didn't know what he was doing. And, and, and this went on and on. And I think they, get, they, they picked up his lunch tab, but they would give him no more money. That was it. Flavor. Boom, that was hot. Hollywood Insider story brought to you by the Flavor Bin, especially brought to you by Colby Parker, Indeed. whose uncle is in Hollywood, and who is actually one of the biggest editors in Hollywood himself. <laughs> what do you got to add to that story, Billions? So, these writers hang out together, and you, you were just there? What's the... Oh yeah, let me tail slate this. Um, so I play in a basketball game uh, that my uncle started years ago, and it's a bunch of all Hollywood writers producers and so one day after that movie going clear is it called no that's the scientology movie. oh the uh the larry david hbo movie it's yeah. called like uh clear history oh clear history right clear history Sorry. right so somebody was talking about the ad and then freddie came over and i was like that's the story and i was like that's like this comedy about larry david is working with he gets screwed out of the money by john ham and he's just trying to exact revenge from him you know it's just a real cautionary tale the lesson learned today hold your points guard your grill hold your points son hey i'm mike tyson and you listen to the flavor bin flavor bin here with artist and musician david byrne hi there <laughs> a, a new york institution with a with a wonderful seersucker jacket and shirt combo for spring I thought it was gonna be a little warmer yeah well right now. i'm sure it will be i'm sure it will be we're at a meredith monk event here and i'm kind of reminded of some of, of your more experimental pieces one of my favorite albums i don't i still to this day don't fully understand it but i love to listen to it is the my life and the bush of ghosts <laughs> which you do with brian eno what was the impetus behind that what led to that we were listening to a lot of music from all over the world, and uh, we thought we would make we would make a dance record from an imaginary culture. Right. And we didn't stick to that, you know, dogma too strictly. But that was kind of an idea at some point. The samples that you're bringing in a lot, like some of the, the Jezebel Spirit samples, oh, uh -huh, and America's uh -huh. Waiting, those sort of samples coming in, um, which is something I guess that somebody like Steve Reich could, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, had, had kind of explored that sort of tape loop thing. But in pop music, it was starting to happen a bit, you know, with samplers. And Could you talk to us about the, the techniques of recording that at all? Like, I know, let's go back a ways. The technique of recording was sometimes you'd hear a great sermon on a, and I had, you know, a boombox with a cassette recorder right. built into it and if you heard a great thing you just press record yeah. it's that easy and 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 you'd get all the hiss and everything but it was kind of okay okay sometimes we'd get something you know without the hiss but sometimes sometimes the hiss was okay <laughs> yeah it sounded great well it's, it's a great record one last thing we have seersucker for spring yeah yeah it's, it's spring is here whether we like whether the weatherman believes it or not Talk about flavor, flavor, flavor. 
Man, what a nice guy. This poor guy was on his bicycle about to ride off and I interrupted him and I did that technique you have told me about, which is just start asking him questions. It's such a terrible trick, but man, he was just so nice. And finally he was like, I really have to go. And he kind of just rode off on his bike. Really fun talking to David Byrne. Could you tell I was geeked out? Yeah. Flavor. Flavor. Oh, wow. That distinctive electronic music bed can mean only one thing. It's time for the Flavor Cules. I can't believe they're here already. This is the first flavor cule in years. I'm not ready. You Can sure? you go? You got me? Please cover me. Wait, did I just see Filmstruck crossed off? <laughs> you did. Okay, it's been a while since we've done flavor cules. I'm going to kick it off with the newly renovated Beverly Cinema here in Hollywood, California. It's uh, now owned by Quentin Tarantino. It's kind of a revivalist place in general. Tarantino does a lot of the scheduling himself, and you'll often have filmmakers writers, actors, talking about the movies they're in after the screenings. It's pretty awesome. Not to mention the uh, matinees on Monday, which you told me about a few times, Parker. All right, Bill, my first flavor cue is reverse dating. Billions, have you ever heard of reverse dating? I haven't. Uh... You know why? Because I Bitcoined it. This is how it works. I'm single, so first she comes to my house, a little chit-chat. One thing leads to another, you know, a little messing around, a little hooking up. Then we go out to dinner. Great conversation. Leave the restaurant having indulged on some fine pasta and red wine. Ubers were summoned. Ubers arrived. Black for her. Select for me. Salutations are said. And then we both happily go our own way. Hopefully to do it again. Reverse dating. Flavor chewel number one. I I remember uh, being in summer camp. We had like a backwards night. Where we'd have dessert first. Yeah. And it's all, I mean, it's the, only, the closest I've come. My next flavor cue is going to be the uh, magnifique French pop music songs that are used on the show Killing Eve. Boopy doop. You know, that type of thing. Contact. You know. A little minty, a little bit of heat. Ladies and gentlemen, fwah, 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 fwah. hot herb alert. My next flavor cue is Shiso. Ask for shiso paste next time you're enjoying some fine Japanese cuisine. And they'll bring you chopsticks instead of a fork. That's all I'm going to say. Hey, uh, (laughs) my next one is a book. Splash, The Art of the Swimming Pool, written by Annie Kelly, but primarily based around the wonderful photography of Tim Street Porter. And this is just a grouping of amazing architectural porn swimming pools that will blow your mind. You could act like this is a great resource for your next pool renovation, but unless you're Drake, that's probably not realistic. It's just insane. My third is um, basically any iteration of a modern candy that is now white chocolate, white chocolate M&Ms, white chocolate Kit Kats, white chocolate vanilla Tootsie Rolls, all so much better than the original chocolate flavor. Flavor cue, vanillaizing of the modern chocolate classics. Mm. This is my next flavor cue. It's going to be for the history buffs out there. Uh, this one sneaks up on you. I didn't think I'd like it, but I love it. It's Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Podcast. And I'm not going to say much about it other than 
He does the history of the Persian Empire across four episodes, and I think it's like 15 hours. And even at the end of 15 hours about the Persian Empire, I still wanted more. Love it. Hardcore History Podcast. Nice. I'm going to segue into my educational flavor cue. I'm not a big fan of reading, per se, but I do love audiobooks. And, you know, a really great book that's been getting a lot of notoriety is that Beastie Boy book, which is fantastic. Great book. But before that, there was a book by my man Prodigy from Mob Deep, My Infamous Life. And thank God he was still with us to do the vocals for it. So just imagine Prodigy spitting fucking bars on an audiobook. Talking about fucking blood getting on his daughter, ain't no thing, she'll live. My infamous life, Flavor Cule. Wow, I gotta listen to that one, man. Okay, alright, this sounds so timid compared to that, but my final Flavor Cule is gonna be uh, turning on the iPhone flashlight by saying, Hey Siri, turn on the flashlight. You can also say, Hey Siri, turn off the flashlight. It's amazing when you're trying to poke around under the couch or something. Cool. So that's it. You're out of flavor kills. That was my final flavor kill, my man. Yes. You fucking slat, son. All right. My last flavor kill is I spied you doing this once, and now it's my flavor kill. Ordering coffee at Starbucks, kids town. Ah, uh, I know. It's the best. You can get right at it. When your coffee comes, boom, ready to drink. Bam. You're not waiting a half hour to fucking burn your tongue. Wow, I just left that one out there. Uh. My head's not in the flavor kill game, people. Kids, Tim. Good way to end up flavor kills. It's over? Holy shit. I've been thinking about flavor kills for 10 years, Bill. I mean. I actually had to unlock my iPhone 4 to see my notes uh, the last time we did this. Yeah. Oh, I just dropped it in the flavor bin. Wow. I'm still reeling over not thinking of that kids, Tim thing, man. I'm so jealous that you made that a flavor kill. Pulled the robbery. Savage. <laughs> it was. Uh, it was a good episode. Dope. Follow us on Instagram, Flavor Bin. Colby, you have a good Instagram. Thank you, Colby Parker Jr. Right. Mine is billions. I prefer comments to likes. Colby, you got some stuff going on. It's kind of cool. What's up? Yeah, you might catch me on the TV show Ballers this fall. I'll be playing Dr. Golden. Right. I've seen the wardrobe. Uh, I want to see more. Well, yeah, there's some things in the works, so uh, stay tuned. Whew. Another episode. Feels good, doesn't it, Parker? Yeah, man. Later, Flavor fans. What's up? Order, man. We're back. <laughs>